How should we confront opponents to the gospel? That's the question we're discussing today on The Hero of the Story, presented by The Gospel Project. Thanks for joining us for today's episode of The Hero of the Story, a podcast to help you explore the big story and big truths of scripture. I'm Aaron Armstrong, and with me, as always, is Brian Dembozik. So, Brian, today we are talking about one of our most favorite topics to discuss, opposition to the gospel. There you go. Confrontation. Is that actually a favorite? I, I, I'm fine Confrontation. It. Confrontation. Okay. Do you want to fight about you, it? You are. That's true. Yeah. I, yeah, let's do I, this. I'll we, fight about it if you it. want. All right. You know, I got a problem with you. Uh, We're going to talk about that later. Okay. All right. (laughs) So we are looking at Acts chapter 13, verses 1 through 12 today. And uh, before we start talking about the passage, how about you set up some context for us? So as we know, we've been kind of looking through Acts and we've been taking those zigzags into some of the epistles at times. But if you think just about what we've been seeing in Acts up to this point, Go back to chapter 8, I think, is where really you need to have this on-ramp to understand 13. And in chapter 8, we see that Philip uh, engages with uh, the people of Samaria, the Ethiopian official. And so we see signs of the church branching out beyond Jerusalem and Judea, going back to the model that Jesus gave back in chapter 1. But it's not officially yet. It's just kind of these, these little hints that the church is getting ready to branch out. Then in Acts 9, we get Paul's conversion, and we know the full story. We know how important that will be to the church branching out beyond Israel. Chapter 10 and 11, we have Peter and Cornelius, who's a Gentile, and Peter coming to understand by God's prompting that the gospel is for everybody. And in Acts chapter 12, we see God's power on display very clearly with his people. So if you think about those as a, as a group of passages it seems like we have this this increasing emphasis toward being the church being on mission mm-hmm. and the first missionary journey which we read about in 13 just this fast quickening pace toward this event and so what we're going to do in, in Acts 13 is today we don't have time to go through the full missionary journey of course but i think if we look at just the beginning of it the first 12 or so verses that you mentioned and just kind of get a feel for what happens on this missionary journey. And so what's going to happen is the uh, Paul and Barnabas are going to start in Cyprus. Um, so they're going, to, they're going to leave their sending church in Antioch. They're going to go to Cyprus. And they're then going to spend some time in South Central Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. Mm-hmm. And that's going to be kind of the, the focus. And they're going to spend time in a handful of cities, most notably in a different Antioch. So there are two Antiochs. It can be confusing. They leave Antioch and they come to a different one. Um, and in 13 verses 13 through 52, we see them spending time in this other Antioch. Then we see them in Iconium in chapter 14 verses 1 through 7. And then Lystra in chapter 14 verses 8 through 20. And then they return and strengthen the churches that they helped plant in those cities in chapter 14 verses 21 through 28. So it's kind of the the overall what's happening in this missionary journey. And again, we're just going to focus on one, uh, chapter 13, 1 through 12. Yeah. All right. Well, let's uh, let's dig in by first reading actually these first 12 verses, and then we'll, we'll start talking. So here is Acts 13, 1 through 12. Now, in the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who is called Niger, 
Lucius of Cyrene, uh, Menaean, a close friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. As they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after they had fasted, prayed, and laid hands on them, they sent them off. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. Arriving in Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the Jewish synagogues. They also had John as their assistant. When they had traveled the whole island as far as Paphos, they came across a sorcerer, a Jewish false prophet named uh, Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul, uh, Sergius Paulus, an intelligent man. This man summoned Barnabas and Saul and wanted to hear the word of God. But Elamus, the sorcerer, that is the meaning of his name, opposed them and, turn, and tried to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, stared, stared straight at Elamus and said, You are full of all kinds of deceit and trickery, you son of the devil and enemy of all that is right. Won't you ever stop perverting the straight paths of the Lord? Now look, the Lord's hand is against you. You are going to be blind and will not see the sun for a time. Immediately, a mist and darkness fell on him, and he went around seeking someone to lead him by the hand. Then, when he saw what, had ha what happened, the proconsul believed, because he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. So, lots of, uh, lots of unusual names in this passage. Yeah, good job with that. Thank you. I did my best. Um, only had almost a half a stumble, so I'll take <laughs> it. And we see, of course, some pretty, uh, some pretty intense action. We get introduced to a few side characters. How about we dig into some questions, though, that we should be asking? All right, so I think the first one, let's, let's go back to the top mm -hmm. in verse 1, and we see a list of, of prophets and teachers mentioned there. Again, yeah, a lot of people are mentioned in this passage, and a lot of name changes. We're going to talk about that in, in a few minutes. Mm -hmm. But we look at this list of prophets and teachers, and we don't know much about them, but, but what do we know about them, or what can we deduce about them? Um, I think the first thing is, again, we don't follow these guys much out of this area, so it's not like we have a lot to go on in other passages in Scripture um, and even their role as prophets and teachers, as it's mentioned, we, we don't know quite what that means. That could be an official sense that they held official offices in the church, or it could be a broader sense. If you read some commentaries, they will kind of, you know, put these both options out there. Mm -hmm. We don't quite know. Um, but what we can look and see is it seems to be a diverse group. Notice that several, they're, where they're from is mentioned, and it's mentioned on purpose. Uh, relationship. One was um, was known as a close friend of Herod, um, and so forth. Mm -hmm. So it's interesting that that Luke saw fit to give us not many details about these guys, but the detail he gives us is instructive because again, it, it hints to diversity, um, ethnic diversity, socioeconomic diversity, perhaps, but a diverse group. And I think that's important. I think it's, it should be encouraging to us to see even the early church. You had these, these men who were operating as either official leaders or unofficial leaders, again, depending on how you understand prophets and teachers, but there's diversity within this group of leaders in some capacity. 
And I think that's important. It's important for us to encourage us, but also could give us reason why this church in Antioch had such a heart for missions. Mm -hmm. They wanted to see the gospel go into the world because it seems like they had representatives from a lot of the world in that church. So it, it starts to explain perhaps why this church was so supportive of sending Paul and Barnabas out. Another question that we uh, that naturally can come out of this passage is what can we learn from the church's practices? Um, and we see we see this called out in verse two that they were worshiping and fasting and then the Lord and then the Holy Spirit said set apart these two. So they appeared to have this regular routine of both fasting and prayer as leaders. And so this is a really good example for all of us as well. Prayer, at least we acknowledge as a, as a regular practice, even if many of us struggle to actually do it. Yeah. Um, but fasting seems to be a significantly more optional spiritual discipline um, for us. It's, and when we do, it's usually, you know what would go great with my coffee? A sandwich. <laughs> <laughs> um, is is our our typical response as opposed to thinking through okay so it's you know I'm going to intentionally fast and pray for this specific reason for this specific time and building that into our practices and imagine how our churches would change if we actually did that um, and how our own spiritual lives would change if we did that and so we can learn from that. Um, we see that they, they also continued this, um, just going back to the text, we see that they continued this, this practice after the Holy Spirit gave instructions. And perhaps now it was directed toward what these men were going to do. Perhaps it was out of joyful worship and celebration. Whatever the reason was, is they kept doing it. And so um, there's, a, de there's a, a dependence on the Spirit that, that they demonstrate in their practice here. Again, that's something very relevant for us today because we are so often prone to um, really more asking God to bless our, prayer, uh, our plans in our prayers um, as opposed to looking to God and saying, okay, what is it that you want us to do? Where do we end? Um, not necessarily that we would... Um, expect that he is going to audibly speak to us the way that we see here, but maybe there is that that internal prompting that that comes that that the spirit draw, brings something to mind. Then then of course we see them laying hands on Paul and Barnabas. They commission these two to go out on mission, um, and this is something that we do in our churches today to some degree. You know, we see it in depending on your on your your church's um, you know background. Um, you'll see it with pastors and elders. You'll see it with deacons. You'll see it with church planting teams. On this point, though, this this laying on of hands piece that was actually something that um, in my church before I left uh, Canada that was actually something that did for for me and for my wife before we. Uh, before we moved to to the states for me to join the gospel project team is is a group of a group of uh, different leaders from the church who all had a relationship with us all came around prayed with us after after service and sent us out on our last Sunday and it was it was a really good thing for us um, it was a great way to leave and leave well yeah um, and and because it it gave us a, a strong spiritual starting point a spiritual foundation yeah. to to go on our mission with and that's actually what it gave 
uh, Paul and Barnabas as well. Yeah, it's really cool that your your church did that. It's recognizing that um, you were on ministry mm-hmm. and and on mission in this role and, and sending you out well. I, I'm glad to hear that. All right, so let's talk about. I'm going to talk about the next two questions together because the first one I'm going to address is is pretty quick. Um, we need to bring it up, but it's pretty quick. So I'll take the next two together. So the first one is why did Paul and Barnabas begin in the Jewish synagogues? If you if you notice in verse five. They arrive, they go to the synagogue first. This is their practice. You will see this on their mission endeavors. Um, it Really, I think it's two reasons. One, it's to honor the Jew first, which is the pattern that Jesus established. So go to Jerusalem, Judea, then to Samaria and the other most parts of the world. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of um, continuing that practice of, of the plan that he'd been given, that Jesus had given to all of his followers, I should say. But then there's also a practical reason for this, that, that the Jews would have had more of a foundation upon which to build. They would have recognized, you know, a, a monotheistic God of, of the Old Testament scriptures. They would have recognized the Old Testament passages he likely used to point toward Jesus being the Messiah. So it makes total sense from a practical lens that you would start there, build a foundation for a new church plant, and then go beyond that. And so that's kind of why he would start in the Jewish synagogues again. If you keep reading through Acts, you will see that over and over again. The next question is, what was going on with all the name explanations and changes in this passage? So many of them. Two notable ones is the sorcerer and Saul and Paul. So let's talk about the sorcerer first. Notice that his name is Bar-Jesus, which means son of Jesus. Bar is son of... um, Elamus is perhaps a Semitic word meaning sorcerer. So why does Luke see fit? Why? I mean, Bar-Jesus, he doesn't, he's not an important character for the rest of Acts. So why give the space to explain this name change, possibly adding confusion? Why not just keep calling him Bar-Jesus through the whole thing? My suspicion is because Luke doesn't want to refer to this opponent of the gospel as son of Jesus because he's not acting accordingly. <laughs> I, I wonder, is Luke saying, I don't want to even dignify this guy. You, you are not acting like a son, a follower of Jesus. You're opposing the gospel. You don't even get the dignity of, of that name. I'm going to call you sorcerer instead. It seems to me that's what's going on there. Then we get to Saul and Paul. And of course, we talked about this on other episodes and other occasions. This is a good time because this is where it's kind of the switch is made um, through the rest of Acts. Up to this point, we've seen him being called Saul a lot. From this point forward, we're going to see him called Paul, except for when he's recounting the conversion experiences, which happens, I think, twice more after this. Um, And again, it's not because this was a new name for him as a believer. Saul was his name within Jewish context, Paul within Gentile context. What will Paul be doing from this point forward in the book of Acts almost exclusively being in Gentile context on these mission trips. So it makes total sense that Paul will not be the use or the name that is used for him from this point moving forward. Uh, I'm really glad that, again, we are reminding people there was no name change act of God moment here. So let's not read in Abram, Abraham's experience, Jacob, Israel's experience into Paul. Into that, in the New Testament period, especially there were it was common for people to go by many different names. Mm-hmm. It, it, so it, it's actually 
one could argue, uncommon for somebody not to have different names depending on the context. Right. So that's exactly what was going on. Right. And I mean, you see that even with uh, with Peter because he's yeah. kind of always Simon Peter or Simon who's yeah. also called Peter or Peter who's also called Simon. Um, and then Cephas. <laughs> yes. All right. So here is our here's the next thing that we that we should should discuss here because we get to. Paul's response to Elamus, and it is incredibly harsh. I mean, can you imagine a preacher going and calling someone the son of the devil? <laughs> well, I think some do. <laughs> well, okay, but to their faces. I know, I know some do I, I think it on, some do. on Twitter. Okay. <laughs> so, but I mean, why was he so harsh? And does this, does this also mean that um, this is a pattern for us to follow? Is this a go and do likewise? And so... Um, oh, we want a yes for that one. We do want a yes. We do want a yes. That's true. But that doesn't mean that it is a yes. That's true. So we have to remember here that uh, Alamus was not just apathetic to the gospel, which is which is true in many cases um, in uh, the people that, that we deal with today. Um, he was actively opposing it. And... He wasn't just opposing it for himself, but he was opposing it for others. He was trying he was trying to prevent yeah. other people from hearing the gospel. And so this is why Paul calls him out for being a son of the devil and not as his name is a son of Jesus. This is where I think that there is a certain there's a certain place and a time for people of a certain disposition to be able to go to go pretty hot. And I think rightly yeah. so. Um, if someone is actively, unrepentantly, unrestrainedly attempting to um, subvert and create barriers to the gospel, then yeah, call them out, call them out properly for that. Um, but, Here's why, here's why, generally speaking, it's okay for, you know, someone like Jesus or someone like Paul to have done this. And maybe it's not okay for all of us to do this in the same way. Um, one, with Jesus, let's just go with just the fact that Jesus is God and was God even when he was on earth in human form. Yes. During that specific period of time, have I got and all will, my caveats in? And will be God yes, forevermore. That's right. Thank you. Yes, same yesterday, today, and forever. Amen. But um, because Jesus is God, he is perfectly able to be angry and not sin. Yeah. You and I are not. I'm not good at that one. No. No, I'm not good at it either. We have to watch ourselves that we don't, that we don't sin even as we are calling out sin. Because this is a great evil. To put up a barrier against the gospel is a great evil. It is offensive yeah. to God, and it should be offensive to God's people. But in that, we don't want to create a barrier for ourselves by being jerk stores. <laughs> but we also, so we, but we, at the same time, we don't want to, uh, we don't want to be doormats either. We don't want to give the impression that these things are okay. We also don't want to. Um, we also don't want to repay evil with evil, and so 
we have to be wise in doing this and we and we have to recognize though that we do see this pattern and it is an acceptable pattern with those who are open to the gospel we should always take a gentler approach and and we do see this with Paul just as we saw it with Jesus that the people that he was the most that he was the kindest and gentlest toward were the people who had some kind of awareness of the depth of their sin. Even if not fully, they had some sense of it. They understood it from that perspective. Um, But then there are those that Jesus was particularly harsh with and that Paul, likewise, was particularly harsh with. Those people who were opposed to the gospel, who are very closed to it, and not just in a, they have a, they're hard-hearted, and, and, but we are going to come around to it, and so they need a, a good, holy slap upside the head. Um, these are people who are acting as enemies of God. And so we saw Jesus call people sons of the devil um, in, you know, in the gospels. Um, and he was doing that to the religious leaders, Paul is being significantly less harsh than Jesus because he's not doing it to a religious leader. He's doing it to a sorcerer. Um, still not cool. <laughs> yeah, but I, I think what you, you point out is really important there, that context should demand a different response at times. It just, it's hard yeah. to know which one to do at times. But, but yeah, there's sometimes, you know, I tell people, sometimes somebody needs a, a good kick in the pants. Mm-hmm. Sometimes they need an arm on the shoulder. It just depends on context. All right, so let's look at one more question here, and and we see it in verse 11. What's significant about Paul's declaration of judgment on the sorcerer then? And if you you look back at at verse 11, we see, now look, the Lord's hand, this is Paul speaking, is against you. You are going to be blind and will not see the sun for a time. Immediately a mist of darkness fell on him, and he went around seeking someone to lead him by the hand. So if you read that, and you go back to Paul's conversion, there's some real similarities between the two. Mm-hmm. Um, think about Paul was a hostile opponent to the gospel himself, wasn't he? Yes, he was. He was doing, yeah, he was doing what the sorcerer did. He was being, he wasn't just dismissing the gospel. He was trying to prevent the gospel from going forth. Then what happened? He encountered, Paul did, encountered Jesus on the road to Damascus, and Paul was blinded, and he needed somebody to take him by the hand an act of humility in his life, then Paul repented. So here we see something similar happen, and you just have to, okay, so what happened to the sorcerer? He experienced something similar. He encountered Jesus not directly on the road to Damascus, but he encountered Jesus through Paul's preaching of Jesus. He is blinded to try to humble him. He needs somebody to take him around by the hand in humility. Will he repent too? So he's going to be given the same opportunity. We don't know. Yeah. Um, another thing, though, practically, is this affirms that God's hand is on this missions endeavor. Paul, God used Paul to do something miraculous here, just like he had Peter before in Acts. It is affirming. Can you imagine somebody who had been watching and listening to that conversation? And you're just kind of, you know, you're eating your popcorn as you're watching all this go down. <laughs> and then the next thing you know, Paul says, no, you're going to be judged. And the man goes blind. And you're like, wait a minute. I'm going to pay attention to what this Paul guy's talking about. Yeah. And so it gives the gospel credence 
for those who witnessed it and as word would have gone out. So this is, as we see, this is the pattern in the miracles of Jesus. His miracles were done for two reasons. One, out of compassion. He healed people because he cared about them. He loves people. Mm -hmm. But two, to affirm his identity and his message of the gospel. Similar here. We had it with Peter earlier, Paul here on this mission endeavor. Right from the start, we're going to see hey, my words, the gospel I'm proclaiming has credibility because, look, I can do things through God's power that are not normal. Yeah, there you go. And Brian, I got to say, I am really proud of you for not taking the opportunity for some for, for some good old-fashioned Baptist alliteration in that, uh, because you passed by compassion and confirmation. And, uh, mm. and I'm really proud of you for that. So. I only think because I don't have a poem to read in my back pocket mm. and, you know, that's Without right. that poem, I you know, just want to steer clear. You know, you got to start working on some haikus and just have them, have them <laughs> ready to go all the time. All right. All right. So uh, let's, uh, we've already done most of this, but, uh, but in thinking about this through a discipleship perspective, um, how about you uh, tie a bow on all of this and just give a, a, a quick summary of, of the things that we, we really talked okay. about right from the outset? Yeah, I think there are two main takeaways, just to summarize again and, and wrap up quickly. One, this gives us uh, a reason to consider how do we confront opponents to the gospel, this, the question you let off the episode with. And, um, you know, making sure we're interpreting uh, this passage correctly and carefully to, you know, and not, as we hinted at and joked at, not taking this as, as a blanket permission to be jerky to one another. Um there may be a time and need for that confrontation. Again, there may be a time and need for gentle, loving, patient approaches to others as well. So just seeking the best for that, what honors the gospel and Christ most in that encounter. And the second thing is this gives us an opportunity to consider our church rhythms. Going way back to the church in Antioch, sending out Paul and Barnabas, and you talked about prayer and fasting. We talked about unity and diversity together in this, this beautiful picture of the gospel. And then evangelistic zeal, this passion to see people come to Christ. And so when we look at this passage and we're, we're um, discipling others or teaching them, I think these ideas are natural for us to consider. How are we doing as a church? How are we doing as a people? How are we doing as individuals in these different areas? And that is a, a good note for us to end on. So thanks for uh, summarizing all of that so well. And uh, thank you all for listening to today's episode of the podcast. If you enjoyed it, please do leave a sincere five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you use to listen to the show. And for more resources to help you focus your ministry on the gospel, please visit gospelproject.com.